This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller and Danny Nelson as they seize the world of crypto. Welcome to Carpe Consensus. I'm your host, Danny Nelson, the only surviving host after the apocalypse that is layoffs and or holiday breaks. This week, we are joined by Sam Kessler, another wonderful reporter here at Coindesk, which is, of course, the network that brings you all these wonderful Coindesk podcasts. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, Danny. Happy to be here. Awesome. And just a listener note, Ben will, at some point in the future, return, but not this week. This week, we're going to be talking about outages. Outages, Mm. outages, outages. The latest outage in crypto world is on the biggest blockchain, or rather not the biggest blockchain, but the most notable one of late. That's Coinbase's base. Earlier this week, I think it was on Tuesday, the base chain stopped producing blocks, which is a wonky way of saying that it stopped working. Because if you don't produce blocks and you're a blockchain, you're not adding anything to the chain. And if you're not adding anything to the chain, nothing's happening. So Sam, do we have any idea why nothing was happening on the base chain? So they say they being Coinbase. It's a little bit confusing. Coinbase, the company created Base, the blockchain. And there's always you know these divisions that they try to do to make it clear that the blockchain is not the company. But anyway, in this case, they said that they had a delay in block production due in part to our internal infrastructure requiring a refresh. Then they said the issue was identified and remediated, and they did eventually get the chain back online. I think it was like 45 minutes altogether. In those 45 minutes, you can learn quite a lot just about how Mm. Base is, because Coinbase is making all this noise about, well, we're over here, Base is over there, we're going to be influential within Base, but we are not Base. Well, someone is Base, and whoever that someone is had to do a manual refresh of the chain in their own words to make it work. And this reminds me of all the times that Solana has gone offline, which is one of its skills as a blockchain, just going dark. <laughs> in those instances, what happens is in the Discord, all the different people who run the infrastructure, because there isn't internal infrastructure, this is spread out across many different people in many different countries. These people come together and they organize, usually with a Google Doc and a lot of cursing, how to initiate a restart by basically moving their validators back to an earlier version of the software and hoping that it works without a hitch. From my understanding of what Base said here, which isn't much, well, they had their infrastructure internally, and they needed to unplug the router and plug it back in to make it work. Is that an oversimplification? Uh, So is it an oversimplification? A little bit, but I think it kind of does get to the main point that people have started focusing on when this outage happened this week, which is that Layer two products like Base, like Optimism, like Arbitrum, like all these things that are trying to speed up transactions that still settle on Ethereum, these roll-up chains, these layer twos, are not equivalent to using Ethereum, the Base network itself. It obviously is not a good look for a blockchain to go offline. But then when we look specifically at what a roll-up chain is supposed to do, what a layer two chain is supposed to do, those are you know terms used to refer to what Base is supposed to be. These networks are supposed to bundle up transactions from users and then send them to Ethereum. So they're separate networks, but they still settle transactions on Ethereum with ideally the same security guarantees as you get on Ethereum itself. This was an example 
of how, at least today, the promise of equivalence with Ethereum is not true. There, there's a lot that we can get into. Danny, what do you think? I don't know. Like, I can't get over this idea that you have to practice what you preach. And this whole world is all about decentralized infrastructure. Okay, well, maybe then if we're being purists, we shouldn't have a layer two. If the thing that you're building on is so fundamentally unusable that you need to have a centralized solution on top of it to make it work, which is, I, I think, fair to say the core premise of all layer two networks, that being ETH is valuable, but it's also not useful, and therefore we can be useful on top of its value. Well, it's a pretty big concession to say, use our thing that we will update. We will decide what the update is. We will push the update. And then if the update doesn't work, we're going to roll it back and try something new. And maybe we'll tell you what it is. They haven't actually told us what it is, but they, they say internal infrastructure. This is happening inside. They're making the decisions. We don't know what those decisions are. And so to me, it just makes it not valuable as a platform to use. To give them a little bit, them being base and these other layer two networks, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, they are very transparent in a sense, at least if you go into their developer docs, even though it's not in their marketing, they're transparent that they still use training wheels. And that's a term they use to refer to things like a centralized sequencer, for example, which is kind of the method that Coinbase, the company, uses to propose blocks on base, the blockchain. Right now, base is centralized in that Coinbase is the only entity that is allowed to do this. It's the only one that runs the sequencer. It essentially is the sole entity responsible for bundling things up and passing them down to Ethereum. But there are things that are coming around the bend that will allow Coinbase to decentralize elements of its infrastructure like its sequencer. And the reason why they haven't been implemented, according to Coinbase and all of these layer two networks that still have specifically centralized sequencers, is just that there's security risks today to implementing that kind of functionality. There's more outages that we might see because of the state of that technology. So in the long term, they are going to decentralize, but they haven't done so yet. It's not just about these, in this case, these sequencers that I'm talking about. The fact that Coinbase infrastructure, in the case of Base, is the only entity running the Base blockchain. There's so many other things that you can look at under the hood that, in my mind, is way more compromising to the integrity of these systems than just the fact that they can go offline. So you're saying that the training wheels are fundamentally a flaw? I, I wouldn't say that they're fundamentally a flaw. I would say that they exist. And that's just the reality of how the systems work today, is they have, they're called training wheels. You eventually take them off. Mm -hmm. So today, if you look at these systems, if you want to say, hey, use layer twos, they're cheaper, they're faster, and they're equivalent to using Ethereum. It's just like using Ethereum, except it's just better in all of these different user experience ways. That would be a false statement. And that is the statement that you often see reflected in the marketing from base, optimism, arbitrum, and so on. So that is true. That is a flaw. But if they do hope to live up to that marketing, these training wheels are necessary. So yes, they're a flaw. But if they go away, it doesn't mean they're fundamentally destroying the entire premise upon which these things are built. Yeah, I guess from the user perspective, we're just going to have to uh, wait and see how this all shakes out. Because you know the, the outage this week, end of the day, it really wasn't that bad. 
there were no funds lost. Money doesn't really get lost when these things happen, except for the cases when maybe someone invested in some really crappy token that moved a lot. But no one's money was hacked in this instance. They just were unable to get to it for a couple minutes. Like one last thing I'll say on this is just money was not stolen. These centralized sequencers that we talked about, they don't allow entities like Coinbase to steal money from their users. They allow them to reorganize the order of transactions that are sent to Ethereum, but you can't steal money that way. But there are bigger flaws, like, like I alluded to, when it comes to these training wheels. The main one being that Optimism, the platform upon which Base has based, <laughs> Base has no pun intended, based its technology, does not currently have fraud proofs, which is the entire technology upon which these things are supposed to be built in order to preserve the security guarantees of Ethereum. You can Google that. We won't get into it on this episode, but like that's a way more fundamental issue than just centralized sequencers and infrastructure that can go offline. You know, I'm hearing from you, Sam, that there's a whole bunch of issues well beyond just they had to unplug and plug it back in that you have to think about when it comes to L2s and what the trade-offs are. Yeah, yeah. And those issues, like you said, no money was stolen, but money can be stolen theoretically. There's money locked up in smart contracts on Ethereum. And that money is then ported, bridged over to Coinbase. If those contracts are sabotaged, if the mechanism that they use to look at transaction integrity is flawed, that will materially impact users of these chains. And that's a problem. So yeah, I mean, one of the interesting elements of this, like we keep on talking about, is just the fact that it is Coinbase, a publicly traded company that runs this blockchain. So all of these training wheels things aside and the actual nuances of the technology aside, what do you think it means in this case that it's Coinbase, not you know Solana, that runs this chain? Well, Coinbase's goal in the base chain is really to abstract away all those L2 solution mumbo jumbo, everything, and make it easy for their customers who might just buy Bitcoin and Ether in their Coinbase, keep it in the Coinbase account, never move it, to give them a way into crypto, into on-chain crypto, that is, that is a very controlled experience without being a permissioned blockchain. So that's the purpose of Base here. And it re really raises the stakes because Coinbase wants to be the everything company when it comes to crypto. It wants to be the spot where you buy, where you sell, where you transfer, where you trade. Also now, conduct your on-chain business with a chain that they say is better for layer two transactions. So that just makes it so much more important to really look closely at what it is that they're selling. And it's not like, as we've talked about earlier in this episode, it's not like we're learning anything new with this chain going offline and having to be restarted from an insider perspective, but it is a very important reminder and a first experience for those newcomers to on-chain transactions that this is not a Solana. This is not an Ethereum. This is something built on top of the base layer being Ethereum, and you have to think about what it is that you want to accomplish. For most people, probably all people really, it's just us that care. They're not going to care. They're going to keep going about their business. But we're here to tell you that you should care because on-chain stuff is cool and decentralization is cool. And this is not entirely decentralized. Not that anything is, but this is more not so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you touch on a good point. Broadly speaking, I just think it's interesting. Like you can talk about decentralization and centralization in 
absolutes and you can talk about it in terms of like the philosophy. Why is this good or bad? And I think examples like this show tangibly why centralized infrastructure can be a risk for users. And I mean, 45 minutes of an outage is not a huge deal. Money is not stolen. But if you're trying to build a you know large scale financial platform that relies on immediate settlement, that does materially impact users. And we see only can that happen with centralized infrastructure, at least in this case. It, it, just a final note on this subject. I got to say, I very much enjoy when restarts have to be organized. There's nothing better than being in the Solana Discord when you have like the two people, there's one guy named Trent, I think his last name's actually Nelson, I don't know. But there's this Trent guy and another guy, and they're just cursing and yelling at everyone. And, and the validators are yelling at everyone and everyone's in the Discord and everyone's in the Google Doc and trying to figure out where to do the restart and how to do it. And it's chaotic and people make fun of it, but it is a lot of people across the whole universe of crypto trying to coordinate to do something. And that is not what happened here. And that's just worth thinking about. That's a good point. Okay, maybe to switch gears a little bit, something else that I've been thinking about this week, and I actually wrote a piece on it yesterday, is this idea proposed by the founder of another rollup, of the ZK Sync rollup. One of the co-founders of Matter Labs, the, the company behind it, pitched this idea of an Ethereum Supreme Court to arbitrate off-chain disputes. The thing that we've been talking about today with Coinbase and Base and how it went offline kind of exposed a potential risk for Ethereum, which is that increasingly billions and billions of dollars are flowing into these layer two platforms and other protocols that are not Ethereum's base network. These are, it's not ETH going into these chains, it's other assets, it's billions of dollars worth of those assets. And if something goes wrong, then users of these other networks are completely out of luck. So when money was stolen from Curve, they basically needed to wait for good Samaritans or regretful hackers to return some of that money in order to recoup users' losses. Whereas Ethereum itself, when in a very rare instance years and years ago in 2016 with the DAO hack, when a big chunk of all Ethereum got stolen by a hacker, which was deemed a systemic risk to Ethereum's chain, the amount of ETH tokens that went into the hands of one person, they were able to fork the entire blockchain, essentially roll back its history in order to make users whole again. That's not something that these other platforms can do, yet they're growing to a scale that becomes systemically risky. So this idea is essentially one of these roll-up platforms is appealing to Ethereum's community to create a kind of legal structure a court system modeled after you know the ones we have in the real world where these layer 2 platforms can appeal to real people to you know fork the entire blockchain to save people this is not the first time i've heard of an extrajudicial legal system in the crypto/ethereum context in 2020 i wrote about how aragon which has since evolved well beyond this point was trying to set up a decentralized court system to arbitrate over DAO matters. So this is a little mm. different because what you're talking about here seems to be focusing on the systemically important aspect. Like when there's billions of dollars at risk, what do we do if something goes wrong? For the court system that I wrote about, it was, okay, well, maybe there's millions of dollars at risk and it's in the context of projects, not 
whole ecosystems. What do we do there? Anyway, it didn't work. I don't really know why it didn't work, but it didn't work. And maybe one of the reasons why it didn't work is because it's really hard to create a new legal system when you're in a decentralized, supposedly decentralized world. You have a lot of opinions. It's really hard to govern, and it's even harder to create a court system that everyone decides to trust in their decision-making to the point where they actually have authority, right? Like courts only work because we all agree that courts work. It's a social construct. And let's just jump ahead to the conclusion of this. Let's say that they set up a court system. If the court is going to have the ability to, let's talk about the DAO hack, roll back the chain or reclaim money, well, then in theory, they're going to need to have some ability to impact every transaction that ever happens, right? Like that has to be power that they have. I don't see how anyone would agree to let anybody have that kind of power because so many times in crypto, we see things going wrong. What if the North Koreans hacked the courts? What would happen then? Well, it's interesting you bring up North Koreans because that's one of the things, at least in this like Supreme Court scenario, that they're trying to respond to specifically, which is oh my God, really? the idea. That's great. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not North Korea specifically, but it's the idea of states, nation states, okay. taking over network states like Ethereum. The idea that if these systems become valuable enough, it will essentially become profitable for government entities to sabotage them. Remember, power in Ethereum, a proof of stake blockchain, and so many of these other blockchains that we talk about today is premised on staking. The idea of whoever holds the most of this currency has power to secure the chain and overturn transactions, so on and so forth. If a government has enough money to buy up a bunch of Ethereum, that's always going to be a risk. But this kind of idea of like, how do you reconcile real world decision making with, you know, the whole code is law paradigm upon which all these systems are built, it does, I think, brush over the fact that today, all of these blockchain systems, Ethereum, Bitcoin, and so on, are built on social consensus. There are human beings who have made the decision to run node infrastructure around the world that keeps these systems up and running. If a majority of those people ever choose to create a new blockchain, to fork the blockchain, to create something brand new entirely and just call it Ethereum, maybe it's not even a blockchain, that thing becomes Ethereum. So rather than like a flaw, I think it, it just is a reality, which is just that there are always human decision makers at the end of the day. And this proposal for an Ethereum Supreme Court is just trying to create a formal track for projects like the ones you've mentioned, Danny, to appeal to that human decision making body. I don't know. I'm going to stay on the side of just radical decentralization. I think that if we're going to take this Bitcoin idea of the sovereign individual and keep it in the Ethereum context, which I think is a fair thing to desire, because Ethereum certainly desired that at its inception, then you just can't have some sort of body that makes decisions on behalf of other people. But I think you do. I think that's what I'm saying is you already do. You already do. Like back in the DAO hack, Vitalik and company decided to roll back the chain because it was systemic yeah. important. And ultimately, we've all accepted their decision by virtue of continuing to use ETH instead of Ethereum Classic, right? Like that right there is proof that we accept the system because we use the system. You consent to it 
automatically by doing anything on Ethereum. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm being hypocritical. I don't know. But it just seems mm, this is hard. I don't know. Like it, maybe we do want a formal system to arbitrate these concerns. I just have so many concerns about how this would be pulled off that I'm mm-hmm. extremely suspicious of it. I think for this to work, like I said earlier, you're going to need that ability to change any single transaction. And that's a huge risk that would be introduced. I guess where we disagree is that that's going to be introduced. And I'm saying that that risk or whatever already exists de facto. Like, did you decide, Danny, like, did you decide to make the merge happen? You don't run a node. Like, who's deciding these things? It, It ends up being small groups of people and the communities that rally around them, the communities of, you know, VCs, investors, developers, and so on, who run the critical infrastructure that keeps these things alive, they all look to figureheads and spearheading organizations to decide what to do. So this proposal to just acknowledge that code is not law, that we're existing under a social contract, essentially, with these blockchains, is just a way to, you know, make it such that, Danny, if you create a crypto protocol and it gets hacked, you have a way to appeal to roll things in the direction that you need to, to secure your users. But, you know, we haven't talked about the mechanics of this. They're trying to make it expensive to use. There's a lot of ways that it could be spammed. There are, like you said, experiments in the past that have tried and failed to do this. Anyway, it's interesting to talk about. That's as good a place of any to end it this week. Sam, thank you for subbing in once again. Ben will be back next week on Corporate Consensus. If you like this show, which I'm sure you do, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Maybe leave us a, a written review too. Just tell us what you like. Maybe even tell us what you don't like. Just let us hear your thoughts. We want to listen. We want to integrate them into the show. I've been your host, Danny Nelson. That's been Sam Kessler. See you next week. Bye-bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.